Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21 this morning. As we consider God's word from this great gospel, we'll begin this morning in verse 20. You'll find that on page 881 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, Merry Christmas, by the way. Beautiful outside. It just feels like Christmas, doesn't it? And it's just lovely, of course, to be here considering the work of our Lord, His coming. And, of course, uh, this morning we'll consider His return, His second coming, as the Lord teaches us from Luke chapter 21. So hear now the Word of God. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and know that its desolation has come near, then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill that it is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in these days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and On the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up. And raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell upon the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Our Father, we are thankful for your word this morning and ask that you would even now come and help us to understand in what many ways is a difficult and challenging passage. It's challenging, and the content is challenging, and and yet trying to understand it is additionally difficult. And so we ask for your help this morning. In particular, you would give us minds to understand the words of our Lord and hearts to rejoice in the truth in which he imparts, that we might be changed more and more into his likeness, displaying your glory as we live for our King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you'll excuse me uh, that I've shared this story with you before, uh, but it is one of my favorites, and it's applicable to the text in which we'll consider this morning. It was early in the 1700s in France, there arose a, a very brilliant and famous French philosopher by the name of Voltaire. Voltaire was a rationalist. He had no uh, use for, for religion. Uh, for Christianity in particular, and especially for Jesus, Voltaire would famously say, uh, you have seen what one Jew did to create Christianity, I will show you what one Frenchman will do to destroy it. Not, not a fan of our faith. In fact, as a rationalist, he argued, we, you know, we've advanced, we don't need things of like supernatural revelation, which many claim the Bible to be. 
We've, we've, we've gone beyond in our ability to reason. In fact, he once smugly held up, to, held up the Bible and he said, in a hundred years, this book will be forgotten and eliminated. He said that around 1720, that very year, the British Museum bought an old copy, an ancient copy of the Bible for a half a million pounds. At that same day, you could buy any of Voltaire's writing for eight pence. In fact, Voltaire, one of the great ironies in history, would die in 1728. And I just love how God works this out. When his house was sold, it was sold to the Geneva Bible Society. And they would use his bedroom to store the scriptures for distribution and even use Voltaire's very own printing press to print thousands of Bibles every day. And every one of those Bibles included the words of Jesus found in Luke 21 and verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Voltaire will pass away. He has. His thoughts will pass away. Heaven will pass away. The earth will pass away. Everything will pass away. But you can bet there is one thing that will endure it all, and it is the words of Christ. And so we do well this morning to gather once again and consider what our Lord has for us in our study of Luke's gospel. We're here in Luke 21, and it's here we find his words describing what his return will be like. This whole conversation started way back in verse 5, if you remember last week, when the disciples were marveling at the temple and the the beautiful building that it was. In response, in verse 6, Jesus says this temple is going to be torn down. Well, that raises a question that they ask in verse 7. When will the temple be destroyed? And so Jesus goes on in this passage to explain the, the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem as well, and the events that will precede it. In fact, it gets very specific in verses 20 through verses 24 about the destruction of Jerusalem. But you notice there's this transition that takes place in verse 25. He says, and there will be signs in sun and moon and the stars. And he goes on in verse 27 to say, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And so it's here that Jesus is very clearly speaking about his return. Now the question is, why has he transitioned from the destruction of Jerusalem to, to uh, the destruction of the world when he comes in power and glory? Why, why bring this up? This is not what they asked about. They said, well, tell us about the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. Well, as I shared with you last week, the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is a foreshadow of the far greater judgment that's going to come upon the world when Christ returns in glory. As one uh, preacher put it this way, when he prophesied the fall of Jerusalem, he was describing the foothills of divine judgment. So when you come to Luke 21 or or, uh, Mark 13 or Matthew 24, all places that record what we know as the Olivet Discourse, which we're considering this morning, you have to read it with bifocals, as we talked about last week. Immediately right in front of you is the fall of Jerusalem, but but in the background, almost in every verse, is, is Christ coming in power. He intertwines these these two realities together. And so most of this, I think, is directly focused on the fall of Jerusalem. But in the background is Christ's return and in the fall of the world. And I think he wants, just as he wanted the apostles and the disciples to prepare for the destruction coming upon their country, he wants us to be prepared for his return, which is why he says in verse 36, but stay awake at all times. We need to stay awake. In fact, I think in some sense this sermon is for sleepy people. All right, so the goal this morning in this message is to wake you up. Now, usually the opposite happens, right? Um, you go to sleep. In fact, my kids, they, they, when they get tucked in at night, they put on one of daddy's sermons, right? <laughs> I'm being serious. And you think, right, we all would think that it's very soothing hearing daddy's voice. No, it's just they're out like a light, Okay. So we're going to do something different this morning. We're going to try to stay awake, as Christ tells us. We we need to get a sense of urgency. We need to root into our hearts the reality that Christ is returning. We need to stay awake. So, In fact, you you might be what we call 
maybe spiritually sleepy. Maybe you're spiritually sleepy if sin is losing its convicting power in your life. Maybe there was a time which you, you, you remember you were really fighting against sin and, and now it's kind of the, the battle's waning. There's a time when you hated it. Now you kind of tolerate sin in your life. That's how you know if you're spiritually sleepy. Right? Maybe it's been a while since you've been convicted of sin. Maybe it's been a while since you've gone and confessed and said to someone, you know, I, I need you to understand that I've sinned against you. This is how I've done it. Will you forgive me? And maybe it's been a while since you've closed your Bible after maybe your morning reading or your evening reading and you're just kind of overwhelmed as Scripture exposes the areas of sin in your life. Maybe it's been a while since you've left a sermon feeling, God, I need a change. Please help me get this rid of the sin in my life. We're very good at listening to sermons for other people, aren't we? Oh, I just wish so-and-so was here, we might say. Listen, if you are not being convicted by sin like you used to, it is most likely not because you are sinning less. It's probably because you're getting sleepy. Or maybe you're spiritually sleepy if you have a smaller view of God. Some people are skeptical whenever they hear someone share a story of God's great faithfulness in their life. And maybe you kind of shrug your shoulders in your heart and think, yeah, right, I'm not sure that, that's how it worked out. Cynical people, cynical Christians are sleepy. They, cynical people, they don't pray, they, don't, they, don't, they, they guard themselves from disappointment by not praying. Right, so, so maybe you're sleepy this morning. God, Jesus wants to wake you up. He wants to fill you with hope. He wants you to stay awake as he explains to us three truths about his return. How he will return, when he will return, and what he will do in the meantime. I want to consider those one at a time. But before we do, there's a little phrase that's just bothering me at the end of verse 24. It's where we ended last week, and I, I didn't get to talk about it. We ran out of time. And I don't know, I probably never preached Luke again. And so it just troubles me not to just kind of leave something out. So look at verse 24, just for fun, okay? Um, they will fall by the edge of the sword. That's not the fun part. And led captive among all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Here it is. Until the time of Gentiles are fulfilled. That's an interesting phrase there, right? Until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, what we saw last week is that the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem was God's judgment upon the Jewish people for forsaking the Messiah. That's why you see in verse 22, the words of God saying, I'm bringing vengeance according to what was written. That's why you see in verse 23, that's the wrath of God upon these people, that God is judging Israel for rejecting uh, his son. And, and because of that, the kingdom of God is now given to the nations. It's given to the Gentiles. This is why we have our dear friends. I won't use our name because they're being, we're recording this, and, and they are in a sensitive country, a place you probably would not want to live. But why they have gone over to minister amongst the Kurdish people. Because we're in the time of the Gentiles. This is why you can have confidence to give sacrificially, to send missionaries out to the nations. Because God says, I'm giving the kingdom to the nations. This is not the first time that Jesus has spoken of this. In fact, in chapter 20, the parable of the wicked tenants was very clear that Jesus says, I'm going to give the, the vineyard to others. But what's interesting to me, he says that there's a time in which the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled seems to be implying what Paul very clearly explains in Romans chapter 11. That once the gospel is spread into the nations, God will bring the Jewish people back to himself. Back, they'll bring them into the church. That there might be one people united in Christ. I do find it interesting, by the way, in the last 20 years, the rate of successful evangelism among the Jewish people has not been seen in, in the first couple thousand years. It is extraordinary, the work that God is doing. Well, Jesus tells us that he will do this work. The time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. And when they are, he will return. He begins to explain how he will return. Point number one, we'll spend most of our time this morning on this point. What will the return of Christ be like? You see, there are at least three ways to describe the return of Christ. For, for those who have yet to yield their life to him, it will be terrifying, as you see in verse 25. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars. 
and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Jesus, in some sense, seems to be drawing on what the Old Testament prophets foretold about the end of the world. For instance, Joel said that there will be wonders in the heavens and on earth. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. The prophet Isaiah explained, The stars of the heaven will not give their light. Sun will be dark and it's rising, and moon, the moon will not shed its light. Haggai said God would shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea, and the dry land. It's very kind of cosmic and apocalyptic signs. Quakes in the heavens, the sun darkened, the seas roaring, the moon not shedding its light. It's, it, it's a little bit different from the first coming, right? For the first coming that we like to celebrate this time of year. We love that coming. So gentle, isn't it? And it's just so soft and He's just kind of tucked away in a little village, in an unknown little area. Hardly anybody knows what's going on. So, so quiet and nice. You've got straw and a manger and a little baby. And you've got cows lowing. And, and you know, it's a big old star in the sky. And it's all lovely and, and wonderful. Well, in the second coming, right, the, 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 the stars are falling out of the sky. Okay? It, it, uh, it will not be a silent night. Right? It will be literally all hell breaking loose. It, it will be apparent to everyone. In fact, Jesus explains how the nations will respond in verse 25. He says there will be a distress of the nations and perplexity. In verse 26, he says there will be fainting and fearing and foreboding. I think of people perhaps in the middle of a natural disaster. People trying to make it through a tornado or or an earthquake and the, and the terror that, that they feel. I can only imagine what this might be like. Of course, there'll be good reason to fear that many people will come face to face with their Creator, one whom they have rebelled against all their life, one whom they refuse to bow to and swear their allegiance to, and now they come face to face with the Lord of heaven and earth, and it will be for many a terrible, terrible day. For Christians... It is not a day to be filled with dread. In fact, not, not just that day. For Christians, not, not, not any day is to be a day filled with fear and dread. And you see all, these, all this fear and, 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 and fainting. You know, Christians are to be people who, whose hope is secure. And therefore, we're, we're not easily buffeted. We're not to be anxious and fearful people. That's part of our witness to the truth of the gospel. You think, okay, Christians are supposed to be moral and virtuous people, and certainly that's true. We're to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. But even beyond that, we're to be people who are not apprehensive about what's going on in the world. I think that's how we testify to what we believe about God and His sovereignty and His control, that our hopes are unshakable. And so you, you can let the stock market do what it will or let you know, terrorists and tax bills and new diseases that's going to come and go and the world's going to be un, unstable. It always has been unstable. But Christians are to be unshakable people. We are, we are to show the world how we live in a world of, of trouble and uncertainty because our hope is secure. Our anchor is firmly fixed in the fact that God rules and God is coming again for us. That's our witness. I wonder, parents, how, how are you doing to show your children that because of our faith, our home is a, is a place that is not besieged by anxiety? It is a place of calm and peace, a place of a home of joy because of our Lord Jesus Christ. For some, the, His will return will be terrifying. For all, it will be powerful. That's the second way He describes how He will return. Powerful, as you see in verse 27. And they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with, great, with power and great glory. And so when He came the first time, he came to rescue sinners. Right? He came, didn't come to reign. He came to die. But, but he's coming again. 
And as the king comes back, he describes, listen, I'm not going to shroud my glory. I'm coming with great glory, he says. I'm coming with, with power, he says. I'm coming to rule and to reign, he says. I'm coming to, to set everything right, to bring judgment. And every eye will see him and every knee will bow before him and the, the great power of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. Charles Wesley put it this way. Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. Hallelujah, hallelujah, God appears on earth to reign. He's coming with power. He's coming to reign. He's coming to right every wrong. And I believe understanding that truth is, is, is so important for you, Christian, to live in this world that we live in. That Jesus, the truth, that Jesus will come in judgment to right every wrong. If you let that take grips, a grip of your heart, it will change your life. It, it will help you get through Christmas, even. Right? Listen, um, you want to find the power to forgive people? You want to find the power to love? It's rooted in the fact that Christ will right every wrong. So, so often when we're wronged, you know what we do? Uh, we, we, if someone sins against you, you, you run to the judgment seat. And you sit in it. And, and you say, well, doesn't, isn't that Jesus' seat? Doesn't Jesus sit in the judgment seat? Yeah, he sits there, but some, sometimes it kind of feels empty, doesn't it? I mean, how many, how many terrible things are happening and... And, and there's no re- re- recompense and people getting away with all these, all these things. And so someone wrongs you and, and you bolt for that judgment seat and you sit in that seat. And what that means is that you know what this person deserves. And not only do you know what they deserve, you're happy to help them to get it. Right? And you, you root for it with all your heart and you, you pull for it, right? You, you, we, we automatically do this unless we stop ourselves. That's just our instinct. I'm wrong. I'm going to run to the place of judgment. But here's the thing. The throne is not for you. You're too small for it. You're too unwise for it. You're not righteous enough for it. And if you sit on that judgment seat, it will, it will distort you. You, you, will, you will find that you are easily made bitter, you will find that you are easily angered, You're, you'll become cranky, right? Cranky people are always judgmental people, always know what everybody's doing wrong, always know how to make it right, right? You'll be easily offended, your toes will always be stepped upon, you'll always be getting upset if you sit on that judgment seat. We say, how do I get off of it? Well, you only can get off of it if you let Christ sit on it, because he alone has the knowledge and the righteousness and the power to judge. You don't, right? Your bitterness blinds you. You always play down their good attributes. You play up their bad attributes. You don't, you don't know all the facts. You don't know everything. Christ is perfect in his knowledge, will be perfect in his judgment. And so you stay off the judgment seat by looking to the Lord. So when you're wrong, when you're sinned against this week or Christmas time and people say something very offensive to you or do something very ugly towards you. You know what you do? Rather than running to judge, you look to Christ and you say, Christ, you will judge all wrongs, either on the cross or at your coming. And so I don't have to. I don't have to. I'm now free to love. I'm free to forgive. The second coming of Christ, I think, can change your life in this life. Right? If you truly let it take hold of your heart, you, you, you won't find, you'll find yourself not, not getting offended. You won't ever be bitter again if you let Christ sit where he one day will sit. It will be powerful. Well, the third way to understand his coming is that it will be redemptive, as we see in verse 20. And I love this verse, my favorite verse in this whole chapter. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near, he says. So you get this this juxtaposition. All the world is fearing and fainting. The world is falling apart. 
but you, Christian, you don't search for cover. You stand up. You don't, you don't cover your head, cower your head. You look to the sky, Jesus says. Stand up, he says. Raise your head, he says. Why? Because your redemption is drawing near. Now, when he says your redemption, don't think simply my deliverance from sin. Though, of course, that's what it includes. But it's, it's deliverance from everything in this fallen world. That when Christ comes, this will be a day when we call it the end of the world. But it's really the beginning. It's just the start. And, and he's going to come and he's going to bring his redemption to you. Uh, in fact, I think he kind of hints at what's going on back up in verse 27. You see this little prepositional phrase. He says, and they will... See the Son of Man coming in a cloud. Right? Why not? What, what does that add? Why not Son of Man coming with power and great glory? And, and nothing about this cloud. But he, he adds this little phrase here, in a, in a cloud. He's coming in the clouds. Well, perhaps you remember when he ascended into heaven. The Bible says that the clouds took him out of sight. Or when in Luke 9, when he was transfigured upon the mountain. Remember the cloud? came and overshadowed them, and God the Father spoke out of the cloud. And remember, we read the Old Testament throughout, we're constantly seeing that this, this, this cloud signifies the presence of God. The cloud led, led the people of, of, uh, of God out of Egypt. The cloud protected them from Pharaoh's army. The cloud led them into the promised land. The cloud entered into the tabernacle. The cloud overshadowed the temple. You know what the cloud is? It's a picture of God's presence, isn't it? It's a picture that God is here. You, you want to know what that's like? Just read Genesis 2. Right? We call, it, we call the Garden of Eden paradise, don't we? And it's paradise because God's presence was there. And in His presence, there's beauty and joy and life and health and abundance and glory. And there's, there's nothing diseased or dreaded. There's, there's nothing evil or fallen or twisted there at all. But after the rebellion, what happens? God removes... His presence, he's withdrawn, and all the world gets broken, right? There's sickness, and there's hunger, and violence, and, and I mean, just one generation or other, there's envy, and murder, and poverty, and injustice, and, and death. And every once in a while, when we're reading the Bible, we see kind of a glimpse of God's kind of presence kind of manifest itself. We saw this in our study of Leviticus this summer. That God says, listen, when you get in the promised land, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be your God. And it's going to, you're, going to have, you're going to have your own house and your own vineyard. And everybody is going to be safe and protected. And it's just a place of joy and longevity and peace, right? And we see this in Jesus' life. And it seems almost well, wherever Jesus goes, it's almost like a little mini Garden of Eden coming with him. And infirmities are healed and sin are forgiven and relationships are restored and people are, are set right. This is what the presence of God brings. Well, Jesus tells us when he comes, he's coming. The presence of God is coming with him. He is the presence of God and he's going to make the world a, a paradise again. So you and I will say our eternal farewell to sickness and to sorrow and to disease and death and to temptation and to trial. The redemption that he brings is a restoration and renewal of all creation where he sets everything right that's what he's bringing that's what's coming with christ do you have that hope is that what you long for this is hope that christ will fix everything has that made any impact in the decisions in which you have made this year you know, he's talking uh, to his disciples in this teaching. and He's trying to explain to them what it will mean for them. He knows the troubles they're going to face. He, he said in verse 17, everyone's going to hate you on account of my name. It's going to be hard. And he wants to give them hope. Redemption's coming. Or in verse 31, he says, the kingdom of God is, is near. He wants, wants them to live in light of those truths. Are you living in light of those truths? You know, Christmas is uh, two weeks away. Right? I don't know. That sounds crazy to me. I don't know if it does to you. But um, 15 days to be exact. So you get an extra day there. And it just it blows me away that it's, it's just right around the corner. And, and I don't know if your Christmas is anything like mine. But um, it's, um, it's kind of like a wonderful chaos. And um, there's just a lot going on and a lot of activity. And it, I love it. It's a time of... 
I think, great sentiment and, and joy. And there's, I, I always, and maybe you do this, I bet you do, when you're kind of getting ready Christmas for your kids or your grandkids, you kind of think about what it was like when you were growing up and what, what it was like when you were a kid. And there's all these fond memories and it's very comfortable, right? I mean, it's the most joyful time of the year, right? Christmas is. And we have all these expectations about Christmas. And to be honest, they're not all going to be met, right? All, all your hopes and dreams, I mean, the family dinner may not go just like you have kind of playing out in your mind. And, and the new Star Wars movie may not be all that they're great, right? I mean, who cares, right? And the, the iPhone X or whatever, it, is, uh, it, it might not change your life. I mean, you may be bored with it a half an hour after you get it. Or, you know, my kids have been telling me for a couple of months, my sons in particular, that an, an Xbox is going for Christmas will be life-changing for them. Um, and uh, their parents agree it will be life-changing, probably not in the ways that, that we, we would prefer. Right? We, we have all these expectations. And some of them will be met, but, but most of them will fall short. Once you understand when Christ returns, all your expectations, all your hopes, all your dreams, every single one of them will be met and exceeded. I mean, things we can't even think about, things we can't even imagine, the joys and pleasures and satisfaction will come upon us. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Put your hope there. Wake up. Stand up. Raise your head. Christ is coming. And he brings your redemption with him. That's how he will return. So, so, of course, that means, okay, well, I'm getting excited. So when, when will he return? Now, I could be very brief on this point and just tell you, we don't know, okay? And no one knows. And I said last time, if someone ever tells you they know, that's when you throw the book away, you turn off the radio, never listen to them again because we don't, don't know. But, but let, let's just, un- we won't be too long here. We'll just unfold it a little bit. Look what he says. He gives this little story about the timing of his return, verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree he, and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leave, you will you see for yourselves and know the summer's already near. So, okay, how, what's the sign that summer's near? Okay, the fig tree starts to bloom, Jesus says. That's the sign. Then he applies it, verse 31. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So, so when you see these signs, the kingdom of God is near. The question is, okay, what, what signs is he referring to? Right? Now, I think ultimately most of what we see here, as I already shared, is about the destruction of Jerusalem. So I think directly he's saying when you see the famines and the earthquakes and the nations going to war and the persecution, know that the fall of Jerusalem is soon. Okay, that's the sign. But I think even beyond that, uh, there's application for us. And we've, we've seen the signs. We, he already told us what it will be like in verse 25. I, I think the signs for us are the there's quakes in the heavens, and the sun is darkened, and the, and the moon doesn't give light, and the seas start roaring, and when we see the world start to fall apart, Jesus says, you know the time is near. I mean, it's, it's obvious. You don't need to read the headlines. You don't need to say, okay, well, this happened, and then what was this prophecy somewhere? Jesus says, no, once you see these signs, the, the signs I've told you, it's near. In fact, uh, it's going to come quickly, as you see in verse 32. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Now, there's been more questions in this whole chapter about this one verse than anything else. What does he mean that this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place? And uh, you're, you should be thankful we're running out of time. So, uh, like the ten different interpretations of that verse, I will spare us. And um, I'll just let you know, I think ultimately what he's, what he's directly talking about, as I just said, is about the fall of Jerusalem. And so you individuals, this generation, this literal generation which I'm talking to, you, you will not pass away until um, all, all these things about the fall of Jerusalem I have, uh, take place. It's going to happen in your lifetime. Now, I also think there's application for us. And I think what Christ is saying is that we who are alive, when we start seeing these, these signs that he lays out there in verse 25 and 26, we, when we begin to see those signs, understand that 
that that generation that sees those signs will see the end. It's not going to go on for generations and generations, right? It's coming. It's, it's coming soon, Jesus says. It's not going to drag on. Now, we can't be dogmatic about verse 32. Like I said, there's many different interpretations. But what we can be sure is that Jesus is right. As you see in verse 33, it says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I love that verse. I think it's a pretty bold statement for a, a 30-something homeless rabbi wandering through Israel to say, listen, all this is going to end, but my words will not end. They will, they will continue forever. What I've taught you will endure forever. And by the way, he's been right about everything so far. He said, Jerusalem be besieged. It was. He said, you should flee the city. They should. He said, the others will be deported. They were. He said, they'll be trampled by the Gentiles. That happened. He said, not one stone will remain upon the temple. That is historically true. Exactly what he said happened. He is trustworthy. In fact, this destruction of Jerusalem was so improbable, it was such a great victory for Rome. If you go to Rome today, by the Colosseum, you can see what is called Titus's Arch. Titus was the Roman general who destroyed Jerusalem, who would then go on to become Caesar. In fact, I even have, you all like pictures, there's Titus's Arch. That, that was created in, to, to recognize Rome's victory over Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and the uh, engravings are interesting. Now, let me show you one picture of the engravings. You see the, the, the menorah or the golden lampstand there is engraved upon that arch. It's a, it's a record that what the Romans did is they, when they went in the temple, they took the furniture. So that's the golden lampstand from within the temple. They took it back to Rome. And so it's a picture of them carrying the holy artifacts in their conquest back to Rome. And uh, that's exactly what, what they did. And so you, you could take those pictures off this. You'll just stare at them. Um, and so G- Jesus says that's going to happen, and, and it did. Right? If you're sure about that, you could be sure about everything he says. In fact, I think he's alluding to that famous passage in Isaiah 40. Remember when, when God says the, the, the grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but the word of God will last forever. That's what Christ is referring to. So he's not simply a fortune teller or just another prophet like so many people say. He speaks the very words of God because he is God himself, right? He's just not good at guessing. He knows the future because he's ordained it. He's going to bring it about, and therefore you and I can trust him. He's coming again. Now, you might be tempted to say, okay, but it's been 2,000 years. It's been a long time. Is he really coming? But don't you think they had that same temptation about his first coming? I mean, did he not tell Adam and Eve uh, the seed of the woman's coming to crush the serpent's head? Did he not tell Father Abraham, through your seed I'll bless the nations? And it just went on for hundreds and hundreds. I mean, they were in in slavery for 400 years. And then the judges, and then the kings, and then the exile, and then the return, and then another four. I mean, it just went on. Don't you think they must have been tempted to say, is he really coming? Merry Christmas. He came, right? He did. And you, therefore, can be confident he's coming again. In fact, I think that's part of our Christmas celebration. It's not simply just recognizing his first coming, but it's anticipating his second. And I don't know if you recognize how many of the Christmas hymns that we sing in the carols that aren't simply about his first coming, but about his second. Even the, the carol that we, we sung just a little while ago, Come, O Come, Emmanuel. What are, we, what are we asking him to do? Are we asking him to come the first time or the second time? Well, one of the verses we, we sing, O come, desire of nations bind, all peoples in one heart and mind, bid envy, strife, and discord cease, fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Right? We're, we're singing about his return. Right? That we, like God's people of old, long for his return. Will he not come? Right? We need to constantly retrain our hearts upon that truth. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You know, if you walk away with, in, with anything uh, this morning, I, I, would, I would just want to plant this thought in your, your mind. That, that what looks permanent to you is not. It may be around for a while, but it will pass. And the words of Christ will not. 
I mean, the, this building will, will not outlast the words of Christ. And nor will the big building down I-66 with a dome on it. That's coming down. But the words of Christ will endure forever. For my Christians, brothers and sisters, why not in light of verse 33, why not spend 2018 just devoting yourself to learning these eternal and faithful words? Next week, we're going to suggest a Bible reading plan, as we typically do. This year, we're going to suggest that we, as a church, follow the Robert Murray McShane plan. I don't know if you're familiar with that. He was a famous pastor, 19th century pastor, and he's broken up uh, the, the plan where you, you can read the entire Old Testament in, in a year plus the New Testament twice. And uh, there's four, four different ver- uh, chapters you'll read from different parts of the Bible every day. And I think it's going to be very helpful. In fact, it's very easy to break that into a two-year plan. And there's even a a resource that I'm looking forward to using, a a commentary based on that reading plan by D.A. Carson, not a commentary devotional. So every day, uh, I'll be happy to show this to you, or you could just write D.A. Carson, and that's the Robert Murray McShane plan. I want want you to think about how you're going to invest 2018 in the eternal words of God, because you can count on them. Well, lastly, we see what we should do in the meantime, and I, I won't take long here. But you notice that Jesus says in verse 34, but watch yourself lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. You see, you see the, the, very, the, the command there in verse 34, when, you, when he's talking about the end, does he say, watch for, watch, watch the headlines, right? watch for signs? No, he says, watch, what, who? Yourself. Right? So we prepare for the end, not by, by you know, with, with all these kind of you know, pro- prophecy gurus. We prepare for the end by, by, our, by looking at ourselves, looking over our own life. And he says, you're not filled with drunkenness and dissipation. Dissipation is just a fancy Greek word for a hangover. It just means foggy-minded. And Jesus says, don't fill yourself with the intoxicating pleasures of life, whether it be alcohol or, or television or shopping or whatever it is, that you're so occupied with all these things that you have no time to consider eternal realities. So many people think, well, I'll just figure it out when I get there. I'll just figure it out in the end and give no thought to it. He also says, beware the distractions in your life, which hits far more closely home to me. As you notice in verse 34, he says that you can be weighed down by the cares of this life. Now, I don't think he's talking about the anxieties, the things that might keep you up at night. I think these are the ordinary activities of life that keep us busy, blind us to spiritual realities. Let's think of two weeks to Christmas, man, and I, I, got, I have eight kids, and there's a lot to do, and I mean, there's shopping to be done, and I haven't wrapped a single present, and I'm freaking out a little bit about that because that's going to take a long our Christmas goes for three days by the way and so there's a lot to do the cards need to be get made right there's a lot of details right in your life there are the cares of this life Jesus says none of these things are bad but you know they have, have a numbing impact on your heart they weigh you down if you let them and your thoughts be consumed with your schedule and the demands of your daily life and you just kind of push through it all and collapse at the end of the day. And the danger is you lose focus. You lose focus on what's permanent. You lose focus on the Lord. We start to turn in on ourselves and we get so occupied and busy that joy gets stripped from our hearts. And we're just trying to get things done. And life becomes bland and, and chaotic and crazy. And we, we don't see anything beyond the next to-do item on our list, and Christ, in the meantime, wants to work in us and work through us and make us more like him. And I want you to understand the details of your life, the details of this season are not worth missing Jesus for. And so don't let the most urgent things push away the most important. Christ says, beware of being weighed down by the cares of life. In fact, it's interesting, verse 36, to consider in light of that. He says, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Again, I think he's exhorting those who will see the fall of Jerusalem, but he's also telling us to pray that that we might not fall asleep. Pray that the cares of your life won't weigh you down. We pray to retrain our hearts away from what's in front of us to what's, what's eternal. 
We pray to declare war on the self-sufficiency in our life as we depend upon God. We pray to to declare war on self-importance as we bow to someone greater. We pray to declare war on the frantic pace of our life as we stop and spend time with God. He says, stay awake and all times praying. I think that's what Jesus was doing. You look in verse 37. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mountain called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. You see Jesus is very busy. He's got all these people listening to him in the temple. But every night he leaves the busyness of the crowds and he withdraws to this mountain called Olivet. You probably know that the Garden of Gethsemane is on top of Mount Olives or Mount Olivet. And Jesus, of course, will be praying, and this is Tuesday that he's teaching this. Thursday, he will be praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane, but I trust that's not the first time he prayed there. I think he's withdrawing every day from the craziness of his life to seek the Lord in prayer, to be with him, to reset his vision, reset his heart upon the mission in which God has given him so that he would be ready for the work in which God calls him. We need to be ready. Not everyone's going to be ready. In fact, in verse 34, Jesus says, this day will come on, sudden, uh, on some suddenly like a trap. What he's saying is you could go through life without Jesus. Many people do. And it's like a mouse kind of tiptoeing around a mouse trap. And you may succeed to do that for a day or a week or years, but one day suddenly Jesus says, that trap is going to spring upon you. And you are going to be trapped In fact, this is going to happen all over the world, as you see in verse 35. For it will come upon all who dwell upon the face of the whole earth. That Everyone's going to face Jesus either as their judge or as their savior. My question for you is, are you ready? I meet people who say, well, I'll get ready one day. I'll get baptized, you know, maybe next year. I'll reconcile that relationship next year. I'll bow in my heart to Jesus next year. I just think Jesus here is calling you. So listen, you've got to wake up. It's going to come suddenly. We don't know when it's going to happen. He's calling you right now through his word. There's a great and dreadful day of the Lord is coming. You ought to wake up. You ought to get your life right with Christ. You ought to yield your life to Jesus. He has come to die upon a cross to pay for the penalty of your sin. He rose three days later and he says, whoever confesses, with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised them from the dead, you will be saved. You need to yield your life in repentant faith to Christ. And yet so many people say, you know, I'm okay, I'm all right, I think I'll stand on my own. I was reading this week in Psalm 130, there's an interesting question that the psalmist asks. He says, um, oh Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? Maybe you heard of uh, Francis Schaeffer who once had this little uh, thought idea that he said, what if God put a tape recorder around all of our necks and the tape recorder only recorded when you were telling someone else how they ought to live, right? So you, you say something like, listen, you ought to, and it goes click, right? It records, right? Or I think you should do, click, or why don't you do, or you should have done, right? It only records your standards for other people. And then one day you stand before God in the judgment seat and he says, you know what? I've decided I'm not going to judge you by my standard. And golden rule, 10 commandments, don't worry about that. I'm just going to judge you by your standard. And he reaches down and he grabs his tape recorder off your neck and, and you say, I didn't know that was there, right? And he says, I know, that's the whole point, right? And he, right, he pushes play and, and you hear your standards for other people And if you know your heart at all, you know you fail that over and over again. And if you can't keep your own standard, how do you think you're going to stand before God when you have so far failed in his? You failed. We've all failed. So what hope do we have? Well, it's interesting to me that when Jesus Jesus talks about the, the sun going dark and the earth shaking it's it's in three days you know what will happen the sun will go out on it earth will shake the rocks will split and you you read that and you say well that sounds a lot like judgment day 
it, it was. It was judgment day on Jesus Christ. As he hung upon the cross and said, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? He was, the judge was being judged for me and for you. Right, that's what this meal we're about to celebrate, that's what reminds us. My judge was judged for me. So the first coming, he takes God's judgment. So in the second, he can bring God's redemption to you. Right? He's coming again. I tell you this morning, based upon the authority of the word, in light of his return, Christian, stand up and raise your head. Because of the mercy of Jesus Christ, your redemption draws near. Our Father, we are so thankful for the work of our Lord and that he would come to pay our penalty, to bear our judgment, that we might be redeemed by him, that we one day when he returns, not by our works, our goodness, our righteousness, but completely in the work of Jesus Christ, shall stand before the holy Lord of heaven and earth, forgiven, adopted, and there we shall receive our full redemption. Let us live in light of that hope. Remind us of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ as we prepare for this meal and even now as we pray silently, preparing our own hearts for it. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you. We do so today and shout forevermore for your obedience to the Father and your great love for sinners such as us. Help us to rejoice in your sacrifice that we have been re reconciled to a holy God because of your work. Remind us of that truth even now as we take this supper meal. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.